We're going to uh, pick back up in the Gospel of Mark this morning. We've been studying Mark for a good long while now. Trying to do something uh, uh, contextual in the book of Mark. Literally, I kid you not, this could have been three times as long if we'd have taken each. could have been infinitely longer, actually, each little section of Scripture. But what we're trying to wrestle with here a bit is getting these main points out while keeping it in the context of Jesus' teaching. Uh, for instance, this morning, what we're going to talk about happens over three days. Um, when you read it in the Bible, it's a chapter of Mark, but uh, sometimes we lose that time frame of how quickly things are happening at times, and then how much time there is between things sometimes in Jesus' life. I was driving in the service this morning, and I was thinking about Jesus' ministry, and I thought, you know, he was only in active ministry for three years. Isn't that remarkable? Sometimes whenever we are going to the same church or as a pastor, I'm pastoring here at Family Bible Church or brothers or sisters are pastoring at other churches or leading and they'll say, I've been there forever. It's been five years. And I was driving this morning. I thought, well, yeah, three years was everything that Jesus did. <laughs> it was in three years, which is kind of remarkable. Um, the books tell us, you know, he was about 33 when he gave his life for the world. 33 years on earth three of them in active ministry. And so I just wanted to say this morning, we're going to try to get some of that context of what is happening in the gospel of Mark and connecting these passages together. I couldn't help but re realize this morning as we sang that song that we seem to love right now in our culture called Good, Good Father. It's like one of those songs you sing and everyone just loves the song instantly. Um, that, uh, that, that very much ties in what we talked about last week, which is, you know, um, you're going to get a hundred times as many brothers, sisters, mothers, but it doesn't mention father because we have one good, good father for all of his children. So, uh, interesting stuff. All right, we're going to jump into the Word this morning. Um, like I said, we're going to cover three days this morning in the Gospel of Mark, and we're, very, we're drawing very, very near to the end of the book now, even though we're going to be in chapter 11, very, very near to the end of the book. So um, I'm going to do what we always do. I'm going to pray that God would teach us. Um, His Spirit would be our teacher, that we would believe and, and know in our minds, our hearts, believe and be changed because He is who He says He is in our lives every day. Uh, pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the chance we have to come here this morning and to feast upon your word, to hear uh, your divine revelation for your people. And we admit that we cannot interpret or understand or proclaim or believe this message rightly where if, it, if you do not show up. I mean, if it's not your Holy Spirit among us, if it's not your Holy Spirit in us, if our minds are not listening and obeying your Holy Spirit. So today I pray for that. I pray for obedience on our part, but I pray for an irresistible grace on your part that we'd be drawn into your kingdom story, that we would make much of the story of Jesus as it ought to be made, and that we ought to rightly position ourselves in your narrative. May you be glorified. May you make yourself known amongst your people through the proclamation of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to turn to Mark chapter 11. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and flip open. I think if you don't have one, it's on page 708 of the Bibles at the end of the chair rows. I'd encourage you to snag one of those and take a look at the Scripture for yourself. And uh, we're just going to jump, jump right in here. Mark 11, verse 1. And this is the key, by the way. Right away we see we're getting to the big part of the story here in the Gospel of Mark. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. 
If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back to you shortly. Verse 4, they went ahead and found the colt in the street tied to a doorpost. As they untied the colt, some people standing around said, what are you doing untying that colt? And they answered, just as Jesus had told them to answer. And the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it, and he sat upon it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread their branches they had cut on the fields. I'm going to read on one more verse. And those who went ahead and those who followed behind began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. This is one of those passages you've no doubt heard before. If you, um, if you rarely go to church, you've probably heard this passage preached or talked about. As a matter of fact, just a few weeks ago, we remembered this, and we call it, we, we kind of jumped around at Family Bible, we called it what? Palm Sunday. And, you know, traditionally in churches, um, children will be sent home with palm fronds. And I remember whenever I was raised, I was talking to someone this week who was raised Catholic, um, you would dry the palm fronds and you would turn them into crosses or art and you would hang them on your wall. It was this whole big ritual. But it was to remember this moment where Jesus enters into Jerusalem, which is the very next uh, passage of Scripture, the very next line. Getting ready for Jesus to come in, he does this uh, odd thing. I want to talk through this for a minute, talk through a couple of the interesting things that are going to tie together with this entire, this entire chapter, kind of cementing it into the narrative of Jesus' um, final stage of ministry. So the first is that it says they come to Bethany and Bethpage. I only mention this because these towns are about two miles from Jerusalem. I want to mention Bethany and Bethpage because you will see in the text today that Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem and stay in Jerusalem. Instead, he goes to Jerusalem, visits Jerusalem, and comes back out to Bethany and Bethpage near the Mount of Olives. And then he goes back in. And so for what we're going to hear today in the text is three days of Jesus coming and going from Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, it's the beginning of the Passover celebration, which is why he's come to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. So you have this kind of Jesus coming to this place and then sending his disciples ahead of him to go and get this colt. I find it interesting, by the way, that Beth Page, the, in uh, Hebrew, Beth means uh, house. So Bethlehem is house of bread, right? Beth whatever. By the way, I think last week it was, um, what is it for children? Do you remember? If you're, it's, uh, I'll, I'll think of it later. If you're the son of someone, it's not Beth, it's Ben. I don't know. I'll come back to it. So you have Beth Page, which is the house of figs or the house of early figs. Interesting. A le local region known for something it produces. So he's here at Beth Page and Bethany on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And then he sends the disciples ahead of him and he says, tells this very interesting story. By the way, I'm gonna, there's a few things in today's passage that might cause you to scratch your head. I think if you're listening, it'll cause you to scratch your head and go, what, what's that about? But the first we encounter right here outside of Jerusalem. He sends them in to get a colt or a donkey. I mean, the Bible says colt. I, I did some research. I don't have horses. Anyone have horses? Anyone know about horses? A few of you know about horses? I don't quite understand much about horses. 
I know every time I see a nativity, I find it's a donkey, but then it says a colt, and then it says a fowl of a donkey or a foal of a donkey. I'm not sure what a foal is. I know what a fool is. I know what a foal is. But he sends them ahead, and I, I think, well, now wait a minute. What, what, why is Jesus, what is Jesus doing outside the city gates when he's entering Jerusalem for the Passover celebration? Why is he sending his disciples ahead to get a donkey or a, a colt? I'm just going with colt this morning because I don't know. That's what the Bible says. Why send him ahead to get the colt? You might think, well, he's tired. <laughs> it's been a long walk. But that's the point, isn't it? It's been a long walk. I mean, if Jesus wanted a colt to ride, he could have started at the very beginning of the journey. But he's been on foot the entire time, and it's like he gets to the outside of Jerusalem, and he stops, and he tells his disciples, those who are learning from him, now I want you to go ahead to the next village and get me a colt to ride. Isn't that interesting? That ought to be interesting to you. Maybe you see the pageantry on Palm Sunday of the people, the palm fronts, you know, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And, and Jesus riding awkwardly, awkwardly on this colt. What does it mean? <clears throat> for those of you who are astute or been around for a while, you go, well, he did this to what? Fulfill prophecy. Right? How many times Jesus' ministry? So that it might be fulfilled. This is something that Jesus does on purpose. And that's true. He does it because it should be done. Because he knows what's coming. This is no ordinary Passover celebration in Jerusalem. It's not ordinary for Jesus. It's not ordinary for the Jews. And it's not or ordinary for the rest of the world. And we're going to see that in a moment. So he sends them ahead to get a colt to ride in. There's actually a passage of scripture if you wanted to uh, look at it. Uh, you can look at it later. You can look at it now if you want to turn there. It's in Zechariah 9. It's just one passage. I'm going to read a few here. 9, 10, maybe 11. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Set your, see your king comes, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, there's a lot of words right there. I just, right? Ten. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations, and his rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the very ends of the earth. Zechariah. Jesus stops at the gate of Jerusalem. And he says, go ahead and get me a colt to ride. You see, Jesus would have been very aware of this passage of Scripture. So one thing, yes, he rides the colt, and on Palm Sunday, he stops after walking all that way to be ridden in to fulfill Scripture. But let's talk about what Zechariah just said. Why ride a colt? Have you, have you seen the imagery of great conquering warriors? Even think about in the United States, we have ticker tape parades, and, and we, we bring out our best our most powerful things to show off in the streets. We, we drive them down the roads and everyone goes, wow, look how cool that is. Back in that day, it would be war horses. As a matter of fact, there is a tradition that says that Pilate traditionally rode a war horse into Jerusalem at Passover. Pilate, the one who was lording it over Israel, would enter into Jerusalem on a high horse with the army in tow, showing his own splendor and glory. And opposed to that imagery, 
And Zechariah said it, right? I will end the war horses. He will show up on a colt. A small horse. There's something as well in that culture about donkeys, burrows. They're very common. They're work animals, right? Nothing grand or spectacular about a donkey. As a matter of fact, if you don't believe me that this is true, the next time you see, you go somewhere and you see a petting zoo for children where they're giving rides on the, the, the miniature horses or the donkeys, go ahead and get in there and ride one. How awkward is that? Has anyone had tried to ride a small animal? It's the most awkward. You could, it's like you could walk faster than this. I can't help but think about it, people. Listen, this is Jesus, the very Son of God, the very Son of Man, asking for a colt to ride into the city of Jerusalem. <laughs> and it would be a bit of a scene. <laughs> I mean, can, is it unfair to say it would be awkward? I know I'm probably applying my own cultural instincts to that time. Because the response that they have isn't awkward at all. But there he goes. On the donkey. On the colt. The small horse. Riding into Jerusalem. What do they say when they see it? Hmm? Hosanna, verse 9. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. What are these people talking about? What are they looking for? I want to remind you of a few things. Jesus has done many miracles to this point. He's, he's established himself as having authority over demons and spirits, over natural things in our lives. I mean, people's lives. Last week, you remember, people's lives were affected by Jesus. What do you want to see? Your faith has restored your sight. I mean, powerful things have been happening. And here he comes and he shows up and they begin to see, they recognize some people see the symbols and what he's doing. As a matter of fact, David, King David, wait a minute, where's this reference coming from? Do you know this is how Solomon was established as king in Jerusalem in 1 Kings in Israel? How he was established as king is put him on my colt and ride him into the city establishing him as the true ruler of Israel because there was a contested ruler who was trying to steal power. You can look it up. There's an established pattern in the Davidic line of being honored and coronated as ruler, as king, by riding a colt through the city gates. And these people get it. And they begin to instinctively cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which is a transliteration of Hebrew into Greek, which means save us, save us. They find hope in this Jesus on a colt. They find hope in this scene. I hope you see it. It's strange. They throw cloaks upon the, the colt. By the way, that's never been ridden. That's what the word says. They put their clothes, their outer garments upon it so Jesus can rest on the animal. I'm sure the animal wasn't real comfortable with that idea anyway. If you've ever ridden something or tried to ride something that's not been ridden before, it's nearly impossible, I'm told. And yet here's Jesus parading through the gate of Jerusalem on a colt. People are throwing their cloaks on the ground that he might walk with them. People are cutting down palm fronds, but not just palm fronds, but other branches as well, and throwing them down and creating a path into Jerusalem. Save us, 
King, uh, son of David, save us. Do you remember last week? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You, you see what's happening. I mean, I hope you begin to understand the grandeur of this moment, that all this culmination of promises and that people dare to begin to believe that this is God fulfilling his own promises to his own people after a very long time. There will come from my house a root. There will be the true branch of Israel. True Israel. And they see it. Save us. Blessed is the one that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king, coming kingdom of our father. Look at that. David. Save us. Jesus entered Jerusalem. I love how Mark is so nonchalant. And he entered Jerusalem. Yep, he did. And he went to the temple. And he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went back out to Bethany with the twelve. Huh. <laughs> oh, now, by the way, most of you probably know that story I just told, right? About him coming in, Hosanna in the highest, and what's next? Easter, <laughs> you know? But what we're going to experience now is what's next. We're going to experience for a few weeks what's next in Jesus' life between that and Easter. And, uh, he goes back out to Bethany. Isn't that interesting? I, I call this, I don't, know, I don't know what to call it. Actually, I call it observe. He went to observe. He shows up for Passover celebration, but he went to observe what's happening in Jerusalem. He entered into Jerusalem, the word says, right? And went to the temple, see? And he looked around at everything, but it was late. And so he took the 12 back out to Bethany. Isn't that what it says? Yeah. Big pomp and circumstance, big crowds, lots of excitement. Looks around, goes back out to Bethany. By the way, Bethany, uh, Beth Page, home of Mary, Martha, Lazarus, right? Uh, we're going to find out in a few chapters that he is actually staying at another person's house as well. So he's just kind of indigent, is that the word? Wandering around, no place for his head. Staying with those whom he calls his beloved. So he goes back out to Bethany with the twelve. All right, we'll move on from here. Oh, I, want to, I do want to mention one other thing. If you want to look it up later. Uh, this, this singing out, this praising God, Hosanna, save us, save us, is rooted in a psalm, it's Psalm 118. So um, if you wanted to read that later, I'd encourage you to read it. Uh, Psalm 118 is where that's kind of rooted. All right, here we go, verse 12. The next day, so this is day two now, as they were leaving Bethany, by the way, this is probably Monday now, I think, according to the timeline. As they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. But when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Thank you, Mark. I think that's a funny little note. Then he says in 14, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And 15 says, And on reaching Jerusalem, That's one of those head scratchers for me. Wait, what? 
Jesus gets up in the morning, day two in Jerusalem. He's hungry. In the distance, he sees a fig tree that looks like it should be producing some fruit, some early figs. And he goes to it to see there's some things in this that challenge what I understand about Jesus. I'm like, now wait a minute. Doesn't Jesus know from any distance where there's food to be found? I mean, doesn't he know? Doesn't he know whether there's fruit on that tree or not? He, no, he goes over to it. What? To see if there's fruit on it. What? And then when he gets there, there's not. And he curses the tree. You see that? On the way to Jerusalem, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, tree. And his disciples heard him. And by the way, the disciples know it's not the season for figs, Jesus. What are you looking for? Huh. <clears throat> they scratched their heads. We'll come back to it. 15. On reaching Jerusalem... Jesus entered the temple area and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. <clears throat> he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. I'm going to stop. He's going to say some things in a minute. This is a Jesus that we have not really seen much of. We've maybe gotten some glimpses of his indignation about things like forsaking children to come near to God, um, despising uh, the, the, the poor, the blind, the people who are outcast. I mean, there's been, there's been a, you know, Jesus the gut man. But here when he comes to Jerusalem on this day two and he enters into the temple, Jesus kind of freaks out. And you might not be happy with that interpretation. You might say, Bill... Jesus doesn't freak out about anything. Jesus kind of freaks out, man. If you read what it says, he goes into the temple courts. I want you to get the image, by the way, what's happening. Jerusalem is a big deal. In High Holy Week, Passover is the biggest deal going on, right, in Jerusalem. I mean, everyone's coming in for this thing. This is no small thing. And he walks in there, and something that he sees is so offensive and so off-putting that Jesus begins to manifest in a way that we've not really seen to this level. He kind of freaks out. Look at what it says. He began to throw out anyone who is buying or selling from the temple courts. He begins to throw them out. Ekebalo, cast them out of there. Just like the demons he was casting out of people, he starts casting people out of the temple. Get out of here with that nonsense. And you know what I've always thought when I read this passage? Well, he was casting out the money changers and those who were selling doves. But that's not what the word says. It says he was casting out those who were selling, yeah, and those who were buying as well. Get out of here with that nonsense. See, if you look at the text, there's more there. <laughs> That means if I'm in line to buy my dove, Jesus shows up and freaks out on me. Get out of here with that nonsense. Come to Jerusalem to buy doves. For what? I'm going to talk for a minute about these two groups, casts of people that we find here in the temple courts. And some of you no doubt have studied this more than I. And, and I've, I've got some glimpses to this. The, the court of the Gentiles is where anyone could come in and begin to hear. It was, a, it was a place where you don't want to encumber people from hearing the truth of, of who God is. His holiness, his righteousness, the, the cost of following and believing in God. And they had turned it into a game. No, they turned it into a business. 
says that he cast out the money changers. Um, money changers would be those who are just ex exchanging currency forms. Hey, what do you got? Barterers, if you will, right? Um, but the way it would work, like any good money changer, is you've got to pay a little commission. I remember when we left the country, we would go into other countries and we would um, have to exchange our U.S. currency for a foreign currency. And the question was always twofold. What's the exchange rate and what's the fee for the exchange? Because you invariably lose money when you exchange money. And that's what was happening in the temple courts. Then in this place, if you came in and you gave him a five, you get four back and the guy gets one for the service he's providing for you. Aren't you lucky to have it? Jesus flips over the table, the money changer, which I can't imagine because let me just say this for a moment. If you're a business person and you've got all of your wares laid out on the table, nothing's more offensive than having it flung all over the floor. And everyone would appreciate the image of money going clank, clank, clank all across the floor of the temple because it does not belong here. Jesus is deeply offended. And so are the people. Don't miss it. It's offensive. What are you doing, Jesus? I'm just here to buy my dove and make my annual sacrifice and hope that I'm okay with God. But what are you doing, Jesus? I'm just trying to make a living here. He flips over the table of the money changer. He flips over the table of the bench of the, or the table of the one who's selling doves. I, I think that's interesting, isn't it? Because... You remember that there were sacrifices of bulls. Do you remember that? The Hebrew people would come to God, to the high holy mountain to worship him. And they would, they would sacrifice an animal and they would, they would offer it to the Lord. And it would be offered to the Lord, to the Lord's house, to distribution amongst the poor in, in their midst and to the caretakers of the temple of God. That's what it was for, but they would bring it. And you remember he said, bring your best. Don't bring your worst. Bring your best in. Do, do bring your absolute best to the temple because it, it, it matters. Why? Because God is holy, man, and it, it matters. You don't, you don't have a bull? I don't have a bull. I'm a poor farmer. Bring a sheep. Bring a sheep. Bring a male one. Bring a perfect one. Bring it in and give it to the Lord. You see, that's where this is rooted in. This high, holy understanding of who God is. And then all of a sudden, and by the way, is this the first time Jesus has seen Jerusalem at Passover in his 33 years on earth? Nope. Nope. This is the only time where it's recorded that Jesus acts this way. I hope you see that. I hope you can see something about the juxtaposition of what men had done with the holiness of God, had turned this high, holy sanctuary, offering humility, I mean, absolute mercy of God, that you might accept this offering in our hands, that we would not be destroyed. We have sinned against one another and against you, and they've taken that high, holy calling, and they've turned it into pocket change, right? <laughs> Just come in and get your money in the temple. Just carry a small satchel. It's so easy. Show up, buy a few doves, split them open, your sins are atoned for. Wow. Why is it so offensive to Jesus? Do you think he knows what's coming? Do you think he knows what price sin 
will take. He drives them out. This is what he teaches, verse 17. Look at the word, by the way. And he taught them. I mean, this is not Jesus freaking out for no reason. He's not being a showboat. He's trying to instruct his people of what holiness demands. Look, is it not written? There it is, reference to scripture. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. My house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. And you might go, yeah, they're going to go in there and be high and holy. Oh, no, man. My house would be a house where people come and they long for God. They yearn for God. They get on their face before God. They believe in God. And they desperately need God. And they come. I mean, they're happy to bring a sacrifice. They're happy to pay the price because he is worthy. My house is to be a house of prayer. That's that same imagery we get in the word for prayer is, is being on your face before God. This is not trivial. But you have turned it into a den of robbers. And I always thought, den of robbers, that's such a strange thing, right? A dark cave, a little place. You've taken this great, glorious, high, holy place that we cry out to God and worship Him, and you've turned it into this like safe little space where you can have your way. And you can be comfortable, and you're stealing. A cave full of thieves. Listen to the word. A dark place where no hope is found. And the only thing coming is that you're picking one another's pockets as you leave. Verse 18, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began to look for a way to kill Jesus because they were afraid. That's crazy. When you're so afraid you're going to kill somebody else because they're speaking out against you, you're afraid, and they are afraid. But look at what it says next. But the whole crowd was amazed at this teaching. What? Do you see? He goes, then my people, my house, should be a house of prayer. And the people who are afraid are those who are in charge of it. And the people who are amazed, like, we've not heard this before, are the crowds. The crowds are like, wow, What? This is the way it's always been. This is mom and dad's faith. This is what I was taught by my grandma. This is how it's, what are you talking about? And they're astonished at Jesus. The crowds are astonished and the leaders are afraid. So afraid that they want to kill him. Verse 19, here it is. Monday night, when the evening came, they went out of the city. That's day two in Jerusalem. Verse 20, in the morning, as they went along the road, they saw the fig tree that was withered from its roots. Back now to this fig conversation. What? It was dry from its roots, the word says. And Peter, remembering this, said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has now withered. Yeah, it did. What's going on? We're going to jump into this next bit in a minute, but I want to just think, what's going on with this fig tree? On the way in, Jesus is hungry. He thinks it should be bearing fruit. He sees from a distance. He comes over to inspect it, and it's not, and he curses it. May you never bear fruit again. Then he goes to Jerusalem. He freaks out in the temple courts. He drives people out of it. 
By the way, I didn't even get to this thing that he won't even let people carry stuff across the temple courts while he's there. He won't let people conceal things in jars because he doesn't know what's, he just says, you're not doing this anymore. This is a house of prayer. He drives them out. And then the next morning when he gets up, this tree is dead from its roots. This tree that yesterday morning had green sprouts and looked to have life was showing the truth that it had nothing to offer. See, to understand the fig tree, we have to understand Jerusalem. To understand Jerusalem, we have to understand the fig tree. That's why it's there. The disciples heard that and cursed that fig tree. Peter noticed it. Look, Rabbi, the tree that you curse is dead. Not bearing fruit. Not bearing fruit. Uh, honestly, this is a very difficult passage to read even now. This idea that from a distance, Jesus says, that looks like it should bear fruit. And he shows up and it doesn't. He cuts it off. The Bible says a whole lot of stuff about that. We're called to bear fruit, connected to Jesus, bear fruit in his name, through the power of Jesus. John's full of that kind of imagery, right? But if you don't bear fruit, cut off and cast into the fire. There's an expectation that Jesus has. Yes, look, the fig tree that you cursed has now withered. It's dry from the root. There's an imagery here that in Jerusalem, of anywhere else, of anywhere else, he expects to find the nurture and care of people in God's name. He expects to find high, holy people on their face before God himself, recognizing, worshiping, offering sacrifices that are worthy, not finding the cheapest, easiest way. And the same way when he comes out, they, the disciples notice this tree that's been cut off to never bear fruit again. There's so much more. By the way, remember I said Beth Page, the home of the early fig, right? Expectation. You might even, you know, be a little sympathetic to that tree and go, oh, poor tree didn't have a chance, didn't it? Didn't it? Verse 22, Jesus teaches, have faith in God. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. 24. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive that person, so that your Father in heaven might forgive your sins. Two profound teachings come out of this fig tree conversation. Right? The first is that when you pray, believe. It's word says don't pray as one who has a big debate going on in their head about what may or may not happen after this. Pray as though you believe that it's going to happen. And he says it will happen. There's been entire ministries set up on that one verse of scripture. Right? I pray it, I believe it, I receive it, man. Is that what it's teaching? Is that what Jesus is saying? Everything you ever hoped for and desired in your whole life. Lest I remind you of last week when, when James and John say, can we study your right hand and your left? And he's like, no. <laughs> that was kind of a prayer, wasn't it? There's a line to walk here where we have to believe what we're asking for in Jesus' name without being double-minded and then act as if we've received it. Man, the scriptures are full of this kind of faith, the kind of faith that steps into belief 
that steps into prayers and that believes that God will make provision when he arrives. Uh, thinking about that cult for a minute, Jesus didn't have a cult, but he had everything he needed. Go ahead. If some guys stop you, just say the Lord needs it and he'll give it right back. That's what happens. That's what they say. And that's what they do. Get the cult. No. Everything that you ask for, pray and believe that you will receive it and you will. This idiom of throwing mountains in the seas, by the way, I've heard this talked about a lot in church world, you know, pray the mountain might move and God will move the mountain. Yeah, I, I get it, right? But there's some, there's some uh, what do you call that? Like a turn of phrase here happening. This is a known thing to say. God can move mountains. Yeah, if you believe God will move a mountain, God will move a mountain for you. Tell it to go throw itself in the sea. If you don't doubt that will happen, it'll be done. Look at what the word says. If you pray and believe, it will be done for you. It'll be done for that person who prays that kind of prayer. And then Jesus spools this into not just praying to the Lord. Remember, he said, my house will be a house of prayer. Not just praying to the Lord, but intimately, interestingly, and immediately ties it to forgiveness. Forgiveness. I don't have time, right? But what's happening in the temple courts? God, forgive our sins. Forgive our trespasses. Forgive when we screw up. Um, here, actually, sin isn't hamartia, missing the mark. It's more like, it's like para something. It's like stepping around, screwing up your walk. It, it's somehow that in that moment when you're praying to the Lord, if you remember that you've not forgiven someone, forgive them that your Father might forgive you for all the ways that you're screwing up even now in your life. A teaching on worship and prayer and forgiveness all tied together and when you stand praying if you hold anything against anyone forgive him man i don't know about you but if i if i stood and i should stood before the lord and was praying and seeking um anything from him and i began to to list out all the people i need to forgive i would be there for a very long time just doing that people i hold grudges against maybe you're not like me right People I hold grudges against, but oh, God, I just got to let that go. First, Jesus says, if you stand there before the Father praying and you hold anything against anyone, forgive that person so that your Father in heaven might forgive you. All right, third movement then. That's day three. As they arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders came to him, by the way, there's the, the trifecta there, the chief priest, the teacher of the law, and the elders. And they ask this, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you authority to do this? So they've kind of had a night to recover from the shenanigans of yesterday in the temple courts. And they come to Jesus first thing in the morning and show up in Jerusalem and say, what right do you have to do it? Or who gave you the authority to do it? They want to know. Do they want to know? Do they want to know? 29, Jesus replies like this. I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Man, look where we go. Come on, church. You've been listening to the Gospel of Mark? 
Jesus, I'm going to ask you one question. He's in the holy, high holy area. He's, he's at Jerusalem Passover. He's in front of the, the teacher of the law and the scribes and the elders. He's there, and he says, I'm going to answer your question. I just have one question for you. John's baptism. Do you remember John? Do you remember John? Make straight the way of the Lord. Remember John? There is one coming whose sandals I'm not worthy of untie. Remember John? Herod, don't take your brother's wife. It's not right. God is holy God. Do you remember John? Beheaded by the king. Let's have one question for you guys. John the Baptist, was his baptism of God or of men? Isn't that interesting? Jesus, listen church, goes all the way back to the very beginning of his earthly ministry, right? Not his presence on this earth, but his ministry on this earth, remember? He goes all the way back and he says, let me just ask you one question, folks, religious leaders. That baptism, which was what? A baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Remember, make yourself ready. The Lord is coming. The Messiah is prepared. He's on his way here. Get ready. Remember, Jesus said, Elijah has already come. You remember him saying that? Jesus goes way back there and says, was that a God thing or a man thing? You tell me, and I'll tell you how I do this stuff. What? The, the teachers of the law, they're taken aback a bit, and they begin to consult amongst themselves. <gasps> what should we say? Because, listen to me, they're functioning from a human perspective. These guys, the best hope that they have is to find a man-sized solution for a God-sized problem, and they can't pull it out. They're facing Jesus, who has the authority and the right to do what he's doing, and he challenges their very authority to question him by saying, what was that? Listen to their answer. If we say this was of men, the people are going to hate us because they think it was of God. What does that tell you about them? They don't think it was a God thing at all. Their preference would be to say this whole thing is a man-made thing. God ain't in it. But if we say this was of God, they're going to say, why weren't you on board? Is that what they say? They discuss it amongst themselves. If we say from heaven, he will then say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they, they feared the people because everyone that held John was truly a prophet of God. The age-old question is what is happening here a thing of men or a thing of God? Is what happened back there a thing of men or a thing of God? Maybe in your own life you go, man, I've had some close calls with Jesus. I don't know what's going on with Jesus. My question is, that thing, was it of men or of God? Because this is of men, it has no value. You know, if it's of God, it has infinite worth. What we're doing here this morning, is this of men or of God? Because this is of men, it has no value. And if it's of God, it's of infinite worth. And they are cut to the core. What do they say? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders come to Jesus and shrug their shoulders. Why? They're afraid. They're afraid. They're afraid to admit they're wrong. They're afraid to be honest about what they've seen. They're afraid to lose power and control. 
And Jesus answers this way, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Do you think he didn't tell him? <laughs> I kind of feel like he told him in between the lines. <laughs> you don't know what authority I have to do these things? If you can't answer that question, I'm not going to tell you what authority I have to do these things. Jesus is going to go on to teach him parables right away. Three parables, which we'll get to next week. But here we stand. Listen to me. The infinitely valuable question is this. Is what is happening in your life of God or of men? Me, myself. Is what is happening in my life of God or of men? Because if it's of God, it has infinite worth. And we ought to pursue with everything we have. And we ought to pay whatever the price. We ought to go, leave, believe, seek, forgive everything we have. But if what we have in our faith is of man, if it's this kind of weak, stick house that's going to collapse at the first wind, we ought to just stop now. It has no value anyway. Don't pretend. That's what it turns into, doesn't it? Don't pretend. See, the hard thing about this text for me is that this prayer that Jesus says, my house be a house of prayer, stands true today. His people ought to be people of prayer. I, as a man of God, ought to be a man of prayer. I'm a man of God as a pastor. I'm a man of God as a man of God. As a man of God. A person of prayer. I don't know where you are today. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. This one, all it takes is a repentant moment in our hearts to say, I, I am wrong about this. You are God. And believe Him. And believe Him. And this too is an act of God. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Whatever's going on in your life, your heart, whatever burdens you brought in, I'm just going to ask you to bring them to Jesus and lay them down. And we're going to seek Him out together. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the truth of the gospel. We thank you so much for the power of your word. We thank you so much that we have an opportunity to believe and to follow you in this life. Father God, you are worthy to be praised. You are worthy of worship. You're worthy of everything that we have. I just give you thanks and praise. Today, we want this to be a house of prayer. We want this to be a place where we come to worship you, to know you. And so I pray that, Father, in every way possible, that would be true. That we would worship you together. I pray that we would draw near to you. Father, you are not far off. It's not as though we have to go chasing you around corners hoping to find you somewhere. You are with us, even now. Pray that we might open our eyes and see. May you be glorified. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.